As Laura mentioned, we end our six-week series on the sacred currencies of time and money with a focus on worship. We could have easily started with this, but it doesn't much matter because a series does not make a straight line, it makes a circle. Our focus on worship today completes that circle and connects the dots. Where we actually started six weeks ago was with the idea that God trusts us. God trusts in, depends on, and is counting on us and on our partnership for the nurture of all things. We are God's trustees. I can't say that too often. Being God's trustees is core to our identity as a people of faith. It shapes how we live in the world. It's a foundation for ethics. Ethics for individual relationships, for group relationships, economics, politics, creation care, and much more. God has given us the privilege and responsibility to love the world the way God loves the world and act as God's hands feet, and heart in the world. All the stuff that we have, the stuff we have individually, like money, shelter, food, furniture, and more, and the stuff we have collectively, the mountains and rivers and trees and flowers and creatures and all this huge universe that Ethan was talking to the children about, all this stuff is not ours, it is God's property, and we are trustees of it. So keeping that relationship in mind is essential for us to approach the act of worship in the right frame of mind. It's far too easy for us to be lazy in our worship. Almost without realizing it, we slip into the false notion that worship is mostly about us. We turn the worship of God into a consumer product. And listen, we're all in danger of that. Not just people who do worship that looks like a stage show, who darken the auditorium and use smoke machines and colored spotlights and have singers pacing the stage crooning into mics and put worship into a package that looks like a concert. Yes, those of us who sing four-part hymns with tasteful additions of organ and piano and acoustic instruments who sit and stand or kneel or recite litanies and confessions and Lord's prayers, we are also highly susceptible to the fallacy that the whole point of worship is for us to enjoy it. In actuality, we have a pretty compelling model for worship that God gave to us, verbatim, at least according to Deuteronomy 26. And the central act of worship, the high point in worship, is not the sermon, 
Not the children's time, nor the hymns or worship songs, nor even the scripture readings. The high point is the offering. Without a literal offering of tithes and first fruits and other sacrificial giving, there was no worship for the people of Israel. And it's not just here in Deuteronomy 26 that we get that idea. Nearly every place that the worship of God is described or is prescribed, it involves music and the reading of scripture, of course, but it centers around a sacrifice. Without a burnt offering of a perfect ox or lamb or a grain offering or a wine offering or a first fruits of the harvest offering, a Hebrew worship ritual is unimaginable. Unless it culminates in the offering of something economically and materially valuable. Let's think about that. So if we see the act of giving as the high point of worship, we cannot help but put God at the center. Not ourselves and not our individual preferences. So why did God direct our worship in this way? Does God need the meat and the grain? Does God need a weekly emotional boost? Does God need to be validated? Does God need a whole bunch of people reciting in unison how great God is and handing over to God the first and best of the harvest and the livestock in order for God to feel loved? That's another false idea, I think, that can easily muddy our thinking about worship. I've mentioned two ways now that we can do sloppy thinking about worship. And either way distorts our acts of worship and distorts our view of God and ourselves. If we start thinking that worship is doing something we enjoy doing, we might turn worship into a display of performative art and the forms of art we like, of course. And then God gets lost somewhere in the shuffle. Or if we start imagining God has a fragile ego, it will turn us off to the whole idea of God-focused worship. And again, we'll end up putting together a program with rituals and music and prayers that feed our needs. And the offering that we take becomes a fundraiser to cover the costs of doing worship the way we like it. I know that sounds crass. But in stark contrast to all of that, we have Deuteronomy 26. This worship is utterly God-focused and God-initiated and at the same time deeply communal and celebrative and hopeful and meets the needs of us human worshipers and our neighbors helping us all 
become our best selves. How does that work? By recalling that God trusts us to take care of everything that God owns. And by returning to God in an act of gratitude, the first and best of what we have and who we are. I find it fascinating and deeply ironic that the more we make worship about us, the less satisfying it is to us and the cheaper and thinner it becomes. And the more we make worship about the greatness of God, the more likely we are to experience worship that is deeply fulfilling and moving and thirst-quenching for our souls. Because God designed worship to be that way and created us that way. I think this gets to the reason why giving is at the heart of worship. Giving the first and best of what we have and are is a reminder of our identity as God's beloved trustees that results in a celebrative overflowing of blessing to those around us. God wants our worship not because God is selfish, but because it makes us better humans and it makes us better friends of God and it makes us better collaborators with God on God's mission. So notice how the liturgy plays out in Deuteronomy 26. In this highly ritualized act of giving the first fruits, several things happen that make the giver's lives richer. <clears throat> First is that the story gets retold and remembered. The story of God becomes their story. As the offering basket is placed before the priest, the worshiper was instructed to recite their own history. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous, and the litany goes on, retelling their subsequent suffering and slavery and how the Lord delivered them with a mighty hand and brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a fertile land which produced a bountiful harvest such as what is in their basket right now. But it doesn't stop there. Not at all. After they let go of control of their offering, releasing it, releasing this basket full to God and to the priest, the people gather these first fruits offerings all together and they hold a feast. For everyone, everyone, including those who had no land for growing things, like the widows and orphans and foreigners living among them. So the sacrificial offering becomes sort of like 
Jesus feeding thousands on a few loaves and fishes. Everyone eats to their fill. They all celebrate together as equals before God, the wealthy land barons and the poor immigrants alike. Genuine worship is a great equalizer between those who have a lot and those who have little. Every gift is proportional to our means. And it is blessed. And it is consecrated. And it is received as equal in value. And then it is shared equally with all. In Deuteronomy, it was shared with the Levites, who, as I said, had no land, and with the aliens and widows and orphans. And all ate... All were included, all had enough, and all worshiped God. But left on our own, we tend to forget where we came from, where our stuff came from. We forget that it's all God's to begin with. We forget that we are only trustees, and we start acting like owners. And we don't learn by default how to be good stewards of our sacred currencies of time and money. <clears throat> we learn by being intentional and disciplined. The default mode is to act like owners, to use our, tr our resources according to what pleases us, what brings us comfort and security, human nature. So we need giving rituals to keep our eyes and our hearts tuned toward the great giver of all and to help us become our best selves. And we need habits and disciplines like the tithe to remind us of who we are in relationship to the owner of all things. And thankfully, we have these <clears throat> rituals and practices embedded in our public worship, in our liturgy. And when a pandemic keeps us from meeting in person or it makes it less practical to pass a plate around the room, we don't just do away with the ritual. We find a way to reshape it because it's important. It's still an important component of worship, a time to pause and reflect on who we are and who God is. It is not a fundraising gimmick. And if it ever feels like that, shame on us. No, it's a weekly reminder of our dependence on the great giver. That ritual that we do in worship each week is the money half of this, of these two sacred currencies. What about our time? The gift of time is also a grace that comes from the hand of God. And God is still owner of that gift. We are entrusted with the temporary possession of it. We're invited to use it for the purposes and mission of the owner. Now, I'm, I'm sure we all 
I assume we all accept that to be true in principle. We believe it and strive to practice good stewardship of our time. But I wonder if we could do a better job of making a worship ritual out of it. In this full-bodied liturgy in Deuteronomy 26 that involved setting down a basketful of worship before the priest, there was not literal money or time in that basket, but the contents obviously were the result of both. The wheat or grapes or squash or whatever it was they harvested represented a substantial investment of time and money. For those of us who don't spend most of our working hours raising the food we eat, our offerings take a different form. So maybe this is a question for our further thought and discussion that that you can take with you. Like, am I ready to commit to tithing my time the way I tithe my money? Or is time equal to money, as some say? How do I decide what tithing time looks like in my context? That's a question you'll have to answer. And is there a way that we can ritualize and celebrate that kind of offering in our weekly worship? Again, Food for thought. In the meantime, I'm truly thankful that the model of worship we have in Deuteronomy 26 is still relevant for us. Whenever we think about what makes worship life-giving, I hope we always start there, pondering the contents of our basketful of worship that we bring each Sunday, whenever we gather. So let's sing our commitment to worship in that way with the song, Heart and Mind, Possessions, God, I Offer Unto You. Voices Together, number 753.